Hello, everybody. It's Henry Gilbert, recorded December 17th, 2019, and that is a very special day because it's the 30th anniversary of the premiere of The Simpsons Christmas Special, a.k.a. Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. This is quite an important day in Simpsons history, so of course we're going to do some cool stuff with it. You're going to see a really cool podcast go up tonight on the Patreon feed and then a week later on the free feed, and a really cool poll that's going to be open to the public that I want all you guys to vote in. But first, we're starting out with a blast from our past, a podcast recorded a couple years ago with Mimi Pond, the writer of this episode. She is a very accomplished comic artist and television writer who is the credit writer of this major episode of television history but it's not all smiles and sunshine with this story unfortunately but i think it's uh, important to hear mimi's side of the story too when we're celebrating this amazing anniversary of the simpsons so previously only available to our patreon supporters we're opening it up to you guys on the free and patreon feed again today so you can hear it and hear the story in her own words and of course subscribe at patreon.com slash talking Simpsons. If you want to hear another really cool anniversary podcast going live very soon, a week ahead of time and ad free there. But for now, let's go back in time a couple years to our interview with Mimi Pond. The uh, fourth grade will now favor us with a melody uh, medley of holiday flavorites. Dancing through the snow in a one horse open sleigh. O'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Ha ha ha! Bells on bobtail ring, making spirits Isn't Bart cry. sweet, Homer? He sings like an angel. Oh, jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin lays an egg. The Batmobile broke its wheel. The Joker got a whoop. Ahoy hoy everyone! Bob Mackie wasn't feeling too well, so it's just me for this exclusive interview, but it's a very important one, and we certainly couldn't miss this date. In case you don't know, this week marks 28 years since the premiere of The Simpsons with the Christmas special, also known as Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. Now, we've talked a ton about the history of the show and how there was production problems, all that stuff, and the Christmas special was the first one to air in December of 1989. But one thing we really didn't talk about when we did that episode way back when we started talking Simpsons, and one area that isn't explored enough, is the writer of the episode, Mimi Pond. Was not any commentaries. She hasn't been involved in many stories about the Simpsons history. And she's a figure in Simpsons history that I didn't really know a ton about either until some recent interviews this year that uh, were eye-opening to say the least. If you've been listening to our Talk to the Audience podcast where we engage in the community, Bob and I definitely talked about the information she had shared in other interviews that she wasn't on staff because Sam Simon didn't want any women on staff at the time he was executive producer of the show in the early years. 
And that's some tough medicine to swallow. But I think it's something that, as fans of the show, you have to recognize as part of its history. And we were fortunate enough to reach out to Mimi for a podcast interview on this very subject and her history with The Simpsons, as well as a ton of her work in the world of comics, other television shows, including Pee-wee's Playhouse, and what she's been up to now. Like, Mimi Pond has had an amazing career and one that I think is, is certainly worth exploring even if she had nothing to do with The Simpsons. But her story of working on that first episode of The Simpsons is certainly eye-opening and one that a lot of fans haven't heard, but I really think would benefit from hearing. So I was able to interview for a good 30 minutes about her career, including her work on this episode. And, you know, I think you folks will really enjoy it. She is a very funny woman. And I'll just say up front, if you are looking to read more work by her, I would first suggest reading her two recent autobiographical comic memoirs, I guess you'd put it, Over Easy and The Customer is Always Wrong. I've been pouring through both of them. They're really great. It's kind of her life story, and it's very it's very engaging, to say the least. But so, without further ado, let me get into my interview with a very important Mimi Pond on this big anniversary of her episode of The Simpsons. Well, okay, so here I am with the Mimi Pond, the comic artist and writer of the first ever aired episode of The Simpsons. How's it going, Mimi? It's going good. How about you? Oh, it's all right. You know, I have a giant Ikea couch I got to put together, but uh, other than that, I'm doing okay. Um, By yourself? By yourself, or do you have someone uh, to do it with? My boyfriend's going to help me, but he's he's busy. It's just, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to find the time. It's, a, it's, it's either, a, it's a kind of a relationship maker or breaker, mm-hmm. I've found. Honestly, I was amazed that my husband and I turn out to be really good at at doing that together mm-hmm. i thought i thought it was going to be a you know a, a deal breaker but um i kind of cede to the fact that he has a, a superior mental visualization of how things are constructed <laughs> and so i just follow instructions and go along with him instead of trying to argue so <laughs> that's a good tip I'll, like, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind we bought the couch together fine we were like oh we decided on it fine so i'm hoping putting it together will go just as well but we'll see i think there definitely needs to be a, a leader and a follower in the ikea construction projects <laughs> i wanted to chat with you today you know you were the writer of the first episode uh, that aired of the simpsons simpsons roasting on an open fire but uh, what would where did your you you know, career in the arts begin? Well, actually, it begins in Oakland when I was still a waitress at Mama's mm-hmm. Royal Cafe. And I was had been doing cartoons, amateur comics for a long time anyway. And uh, someone told me they had a friend who worked for the Berkeley Barb and I should go see them. And I did. And uh, the guy said, well, we already have Zippy the Pinhead, but um, <laughs> there's always the spectator. And I said, what's that? He said, that's our other paper. And he points the guy at the next desk over. And it turns out the spectator is the adult classified newspaper that was at that point keeping the now kind of uh, failing Berkeley Barb, which had been a radical firebrand newspaper of the 60s. Now it was the late 70s and they were kind of floundering and the, the spectator, their adult classifieds, weekly sister paper was really what was keeping them afloat. And so um, they let me run a cartoon, a weekly cartoon in the pages of the spectator for uh, the princely sum of $12 and 50 cents a week. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
I'm curious what uh, what the Bay Area was like back then. I've lived in Berkeley now for 11 years, and I love the place. But uh, but I, I moved here in like 2006. What what was Berkeley and Oakland all all that like back in the 70s and early 80s? Well, it was kind of like the Wild West. It was cheap. Um, it was it was cheap to to get a, a an apartment or a whole house. It was funky. It was, uh, you know, Rockridge was just starting to get gentrified at that point. Mm-hmm. But every, you know, every place else was still pretty, pretty funky. But it was always beautiful. I always, I just fell in love with it uh, when I, when I moved there to go to art school to California College of Arts and Crafts in 1975. And I just always thought it was so much better than San Francisco because it was, it was cheaper and it was warmer and it was friendlier and just full of all kinds of weird hidden possibilities and and really a lot of really strange quirky working class kind of working class commie uh, eccentrics <laughs> iconoclast type people uh, but not 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 like 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 wild hairy hippie commies from mm-hmm. like Berkeley Oakland was more blue collar uh yeah that's yeah that's kind of the, still the feel I get today though it's it's definitely a lot more gentrified now I'm I'm expecting yeah anyway it was you know it was like really fun and and I mean I could I it was like so much cheaper than San Francisco I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco even then mm-hmm. so it it really felt like there were kind of like endless possibilities and but it was also like the kind of place where people could and did like basically just fuck off for years and mm-hmm. then like you know they woke up in middle age and went i don't own property and <laughs> rents are going up and i don't have a career <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I was reading some of your your new book that came out, your new comic, the uh, the customer is always wrong, and uh-huh. and I get a lot of the feel of that in there too, which is uh, it's it's really interesting to see. You know, your character imagine the book is kind of struggling with with what she wants her life to be, while all her friends are kind of uh, either dealing drugs or just kind of spinning in circles. Right. Right. There was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think I think that's kind of tends to be the case in restaurant work um Mm -hmm. to this day because there's you know you you get you wind up with a lot of cash in your hands at the end of a shift from tips and the you know the the immature impulse is to like you know let's go to the bar and like fritter away your day's wages by the end of the night you know Mm -hmm. and it's 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 not a good model I, and I know that book ends with uh, Madge going off to to New York City, but uh, what ultimately you know brought you to L.A. and into the bigger in the entertainment industry? Well, I had we were living in New York, and my husband Wayne White um, was working on Pee Wee's Playhouse as a production designer and as a puppeteer, mm. and there was there were more job opportunities for him here in television at that point. I'd done my Simpsons script and I'd done an episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse that I wrote with uh, Lynn Stewart, Missy Vaughn, the most beautiful ah, lady yes. in Puppet Land. And we both, you know, were thinking there would be more opportunities in show business and in television here. And we were living in New York and basically we were at a point in about 1989 where we could afford like a one bedroom apartment in New York, but we couldn't afford a two bedroom apartment. and everything here was a lot cheaper and there were more opportunities i'm from san diego we were thinking of starting a family and you know neither one of us was really wanted to do that in 
New York City. And at that point, back in, in 1989, the, the thought of moving to Brooklyn was just too horrible to even contemplate. It was like, <laughs> you know, like, it was like giving up. It was like you were moving to Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that, I had a friend who just, uh, she, she and her girlfriend got priced out of the city. And they're like, well, we don't have enough money for San Francisco anymore. We have to move to New York. And then they, they, they're pretty happy in Brooklyn now, I think. Well, my daughter just got priced out of Brooklyn into Queens. Oh boy, man, that's rough. <laughs> I was as as a kid, I was a big viewer of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like, what what was it like working on that show back then? And what brought you to to that? Well, we'd become friends with Lynn Stewart, and she had been working with Paul Rubens and and John Paragon and and George McGrath, who were writing most of the episodes. And she asked them if we could write an episode, and they said sure. So uh, this is the thing that ruined me for Hollywood is that. She and I wrote this episode, and they took our script, and they shot it. <laughs> no <laughs> problems never at happens. all. Yeah. Uh, you know, it never happens ever. I mean, I just thought that was the way it worked. They, mm. they took your script, and they shot it. You know, and instead, <laughs> in every other circumstance, in every other show known to man, they take your show, and they completely disassemble it, and, and they add g- gags, and they take stuff out, and they totally change it around and and then if you're lucky your name goes on it and you get residuals mm-hmm. i mean but it's just it's it's very you know it's always much more of a group effort but peewee was operating as such an anomaly from the get-go that they could do anything they wanted yeah and i have to say back then in the 80s it was probably pretty unheard of to have two two women as the credited writers on a script <laughs> Yeah, we were probably, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if Lynn wrote other episodes with any of the guys, but I think we were probably the only two women who wrote an episode together on Pee Wee. I've never really checked it out. Mm. What brought you into The Simpsons and how, how were you approached to write a script in the first season? Well, my husband Wayne and I had, well, Wayne had worked with Gary Panter on pr- doing the production design for Pee Wee's Playhouse. So we had become friends with Gary and Gary introduced us to Matt Groening in LA and we became friends with, with Matt. And then, you know, like this was like 87 or so. And like by, you know, uh, 86, 87, I forget. Anyway, Matt was like calling all his cartoonist friends and asking them if I could be wrong here, but it seemed like he was, he was asking his friends if they wanted to write an episode of this new show he had going. Mm. And apparently I was the only one who didn't go, oh, poo poo, I'm like so far beyond <laughs> the constraints of commercial television. I, I went, yeah, sure. So, you know, I wrote an episode and then I went in for one rewrite meeting. And then I was with Sam Simon and Mike Reese and Al Jean and, and Matt. And then that was all she wrote. Mm. Literally, I was not asked to be on staff. And, um, you know, I spent years thinking, gee, was I just not good enough? And then, like, finally through the grapevine, I, I learned that, that Sam Simon was going through a divorce and didn't want any women around. Meanwhile, nobody, including Matt, ever called me to explain to me what was going on. Mm. Um, and, you know, nothing. And uh, That's and terrible. So, yeah, it was. And, you know, and I get to be the turd in the punch bowl <laughs> every single time I tell this story because nobody wants to hear anything bad about The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Sam Simon did a, 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 a lot of really great things for, for animals. You know, in the world of Hollywood, he had a, a reputation of being 
and not a very nice person. I had heard that in other biographies of him as well. And I mean, that's just so, you know, as fans of the show, you want to think everything's perfect all the time. And so it's, 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 it's very disappointing to hear something like that. You know, I'll like tell that, you, yeah. I will, no, I'll tell you, male comedians and many male comedy writers are horrible, damaged people. Mm. They're really horrible, unpleasant, very competitive, nasty human beings. This is yeah. a fact. Uh, that's I, well. So, did that rewrite session at least was that? Did that go well in in the moment? It, it went. It was interesting. It was kind of tense and weird. But I I really felt like there was one thing I I I I definitely learned a lot from sitting in that meeting. And the thing that stands out was that I had made up like there's that that part about like Christmas of many lands, and mm-hmm. I had just made up some stuff. <laughs> and and Sam said, no, you know, there's got to be something really weird that's real and of course back then there was no internet so he was able Mm. to send some like naturally female lackey off to the fox library to Mm -hmm. look up christmas traditions of many lands and bring them back and indeed indeed there were things that were much better than what i had made it made up and so the the lesson there is like truth is always funnier than fiction Mm in the long run just to, to backtrack a little bit i was also curious like what uh now i i know a lot of independent comic uh creators thanks to like online and social media you get to you get to see them know each other a lot better but uh, back then what well like in the mid 80s when when you got to know mac raining what was the independent comic scene like then well it's basically just a bunch of funny nerdy guys i mean i have to say male cartoonists were always much nicer to me than <laughs> than any comedian or comedy writers ever were mm. and uh, and and that goes for i'm mike reese and lg and i had known them from the lampoon and mm. um you know they weren't very nice to me then <laughs> oh, and they weren't very nice to me when i ran into them at at the simpsons either and and you know the the most of the male writers at the national lampoon were kind of sexist creepy guys Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, this whole Me Too thing. It's like, this is, it's not even Me Too. It's just, this is the air we breathe. This is the attitude that men bring to us every single day. It's like that you're, you know, you're to be a talked down to and condescended to, or you're a threat because mm-hmm. you actually have something to offer that, that makes them think that you could be some kind of competition. So they have to do their best to crush that in every way. Uh, now, I, th- I mean, this last year, I think for a lot of people has exposed them to what to stuff maybe they didn't want to know or understand about famous comedians or other just well, pretty much every man in the entertainment industry, I would say. Do you get the sense that it has improved some since uh, y- you well, were there? I know. No, I mean, I know it's improved because there's there's people like Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and and lots of really wonderful up-and-coming female comedians and and writers and producers so those voices can't be ignored anymore so that's Mm. that's encouraging and and there's also a more of an awareness of like every that the fact that any movie you see is like all the parts for women up until really recently have been like you know the women are just there to be like the the happy help meet or the sex object or Mm. the you know the support of female in the background who wants the man to succeed yeah or the evil bitch who doesn't Mm -hmm. or the the evil wife of the character's best friend who says stop doing this thing i'm glad to hear at least it 
feels like it's improving a little. But uh, with the script for that that episode of The Simpsons, this episode wasn't intended to be the premiere of the show, right? It was just uh, an accident that it was the first episode because they were behind on uh, they were behind their schedule and cranking out episodes from you know the, getting getting the the animation done, and it just happened that this one was ready and it was Christmas time, and so they ran it. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, yeah, I, I think mean, that's you know, the story. I mean, I, yeah, and and th- this is all I know because I've been out of the loop for how many years is it? I mean, uh, thir- twenty eight now. I think it's been since the episode aired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so no, you know, no communication with me whatsoever. (laughs) So that's, I'm just telling you what I know, Mm -hmm. you know, because nobody, God forbid, anyone would ever contact me to tell me anything or ask me anything about Mm -hmm. it from their end. I mean, I've been asked this question. I've, I've told this story in interviews, I, Mm -hmm. I, countless times, and uh, no one on their end has ever been in touch with me to tell me anything or anything. That's that's very disappointing as well to hear that I was hoping I'd, I'd seen you mention the this uh, Sam Simon thing in, in previous interviews like this year. And I, I had hoped that maybe it had spurred like a new conversation on the topic or I, I do believe I saw that the they I, make I, too much money to care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I thought perhaps th- there was a recent hire of a of a big name. Well, I don't uh, think there were any staff, women on, but yeah, I don't think there were any women on staff there for like the first five years after i think i think i wrote an episode and nell scovell wrote an episode Mm -hmm. and And then there was like nothing yeah in season six jennifer crittenden uh crittenden was hired but and she was the first on staff but i believe even that was kind of a junior position when she was hired for it i'm sorry i I wouldn't i wouldn't know and Mm. and honestly i've never really been able to enjoy the show because it Mm -hmm. left a bad taste in my mouth and i kind of i like king of the hill better anyway i think (laughs) i think it's got more depth of characters i mean the characters have more depth and everyone has more depth Mm. i think i just it's just more my kind of thing i I understand i mean it's less gag driven and more character driven Mm -hmm. oh yeah totally totally it's much more they're both funny shows but definitely king of the hill is more focused on like the people and also more down to earth not as uh not as crazy uh you you then went on uh staff writing at uh designing women like did did at least that simpson script like open doors for you or was that kind of you know of... It, it really it really it opened doors that then slammed shut right away uh. <laughs> it just it was like an entree into my both my husband and i because we we both had like we had this we were both working the the angle i'd been this done the simpsons things and he'd done peewee and we pitched shows separately and together for like oh i want to say about six years seven mm. maybe seven or eight years off and on in hollywood and it was still like it was this is the 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 late 90s mid to late 90s so um it's still very old school it's very network driven the cable hasn't really exploded the internet mm. is like just in its infancy and nobody wants to hire unknowns to be showrunners right you know because there's a whole factory system of like you have to have come up from the bottom and worked on a show for a while and then maybe you got to you know be a showrunner on a show you didn't create that had been on for a while and then so it's still that system still is in place with with the way the networks work Mm -hmm. um and you know so people weren't taking any wild chances on unknown 
talent at that point. And so it was just like, you know, ramming our head against the wall over and over again for years. Or we pitched till we were blue in the face. We pitched this one idea and with this this producer who took it to Nickelodeon and like we had to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And like, I remember like him calling me one afternoon and my daughter was about three and it was like, you know, I was trying to make dinner and he's like, this guy just loved the sound of his own voice. And, yeah. and he was like telling me that like they'd passed yet, you know, for like the 17th time. And, and he was just talking and talking and talking. And, and I, I finally, I couldn't, I just opened my mouth and I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I just can't listen to you anymore. <laughs> and he went, oh, oh, well, okay then. All right. Well, goodbye. <laughs> and that was kind of like the wow. tail end. <laughs> I'm guessing me. he wasn't used to hearing something like that. Yeah, it was just like, I don't know. Uh, and then happily, my husband was, you know, kind of miraculously found this midlife career as a fine artist, as a painter. And, mm. and. Uh, we were both able to kind of just turn our backs on Hollywood, and I, f I wasn't getting any work. And at that point, I was like, well, I might as well just finally begin on on this story that has been nagging at me since I, you know, began working in this restaurant in Oakland in 1978. So no one else is paying me to do anything, so mm. I... I you know, I should just get started on this. So that's how that happened. Well, yeah. So over e uh, is that what turned into over easy and the customers yes. always wrong? Those are like, I, I, how long did you work on them? Because yeah, they are massive, massive. Uh, yeah. Books. Well, because I was raising my kids, it was like between about 2000 and 2014 for over easy. Mm. And then I continued to work on customers always wrong. So up until like from 2000, basically from 2000 to 2016. You know, with all those uh, ideas you had pitched, I mean, have you have you thought now with there being a lot more places to pitch things to? Have you ever considered going back to to that stuff? Um, I've been writing screenplays on and off for years with a friend of mine, and um, right now we're we're tinkering with with one of our scripts to to try to turn it into a series about mm. a beauty school in New Zealand. Oh, that sounds interesting. Do you, I mean, do you see it as an animated show or as live action? Uh, right now, live action, but, mm. you know, I'm open. <laughs> How has been the response to your autobiographical books as well? Oh, it's it's been really great, actually. It's been very satisfying, you know, to, to have something like that that's, you know, this story that is like, was like the story I had to tell before I died. And to be able to, like, actually get it out there was very very gratifying and then you know to have people respond to it in the way that i hope they would has always has really been wonderful no that's great and i mean drawn and quarterly they they publish so many great works it's it seems like a pretty good publisher too oh yeah they're wonderful uh other than that uh show you're working on are like are you working on more comics now or yeah i've been i've been doing stuff for the for the new yorkers for the new yorker online mm -hmm. um i've been uh contributing comics to to thenewyorker.com since last fall mm. and so i've done how many now one two three four yeah. four i think five well five they they also did an excerpt from uh customers i was wrong mm. which was nice of them yeah no that's i mean i worked in the print media industry uh somewhat recently and i've just been the last decade has been seeing magazine after magazine and newspaper close like has that has that affected uh your your work as a oh cartoonist my God. 
Yeah, I mean, I I watched my career basically fall off a cliff, you know, in the late 90s. And I thought it was because I'd moved to L.A., but then, you know, it it wasn't. It was like people in New York have been hurting just as bad. Yeah, I mean, I had a real career in the 80s. You know, I worked all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. And, you know, moved to L.A. and I was I was doing a regular monthly comic strip, full page comic strip for Seventeen magazine up until the the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And then they they um, canceled that. And then magazines just started falling one after the other. And the the work just just completely dried up. And then and now nobody wants to pay for anything. Nope. They they really don't. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's kind of a bummer ending but on the, the New Yorker has a new young woman cartoon editor, which mm-hmm. is really great news, and she's been publishing a lot of variety of she's been publishing a lot of sequential comics on, on the uh, newyorker.com and and she also just got my friend Emily Flakes had a two-page comic story in the New Yorker last I think it was last week about her, her teenage love of a Bay Area punk band when she was in the early oh, 90s yeah I yeah. read that one that was a yeah. great comic yeah yeah it really was um, so so I think there's hope for for more sequential comics in the pages of the New Yorker coming up. Oh, that's I mean, cool. I love, I love, I've always loved their their single panel stuff, but single panel is not really quite my métier. Mm-hmm. So the American Bystander magazine is coming out, I think, quarterly, and is is trying to be a humor magazine, an actual print magazine in the vein of the Lampoon, being done by some really great people, and they're you know they're getting all the all the old gang back together, you know, <laughs> like seriously. That's great. Uh, a lot of people who, who, uh, young people and people who had been back in the lampoon back in the day. And they, they've been great. Uh, other than that, I don't know so much. Mm. Now that you've kind of, I, I read, you said, you know, over easy and customers always wrong are kind of like two parts of an opus. Like now that, now that you've told that story, do you see yourself doing another kind of long form autobiographical thing like that again? I don't know about more. I mean, people, people want to see Madge, the main character go off to New York and become a cartoonist and stuff. They, they think Madge goes off to New York and is partying with Madonna and it's just not <laughs> the way it happened. You know, uh-huh. <sighs> I mean, I've, I've, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how that, if, if that, I don't think it would be nearly as dramatic a story because I went to New York and met my husband and I was happy, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which like, not as much. If anything, it would be less about my character and more about just New York in the eighties, mm-hmm. which was, you know, an interesting time to be there. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, that sounds like a pretty interesting time. <laughs> yeah, it was, but I don't know. I also mm-hmm. have toyed with, with the, uh, two other pet obsessions of mine one of which is patty hurst and the other which is the the mitford sisters but i i haven't really gotten anything together yet uh a last question i'd have is like do you feel there's something do you feel that the situation with you and the simpsons could be made right or what would you or are you just happy to just leave it in the past uh god i don't know <laughs> i never even considered that they would ever come back to me Mm-hmm. It was, it's not like I've been sitting around going, oh, if only. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I don't know. I don't think it's really quite my my thing at this point. I understand. But all right, but thank you so much for, for your time, Mimi. And I, this was a very, I, I learned a lot in this interview, and I really appreciate that. Oh, well, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 
And again, I'd like to thank Mimi Pond so much for her time and what she wanted to talk with us about. Uh, again, I think this is really important stuff for Simpsons fans to listen to and engage with. And I really hope that you enjoy this interview as much as the other interviews we've done about the history of the show. This is the kind of stuff I'd like us to keep doing in the next year. And I just want to say that I think this year has been such a great year for Talking Simpsons. And I'm really glad to cap off our year of going independent with this great interview with Mimi Pond. And so I just, again, would love to thank her. And you should check out her work. Like she mentioned, she's been doing work on The New Yorker. She just put out her newest book with Drawn Quarterly, The Customer is Always Wrong. And there's tons more of her work out there. You can check it out online. I'll have some links in the description for this episode as well. So thanks for listening. And I hope you all enjoyed learning more about the life of Mimi Pond. Oh, <laughs>